Our scripture reading for today comes from John chapter 20, verses 10 through 17, 19 to 20, and 30 to 31. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin the new year, we always like to take the time in this stage of our ministry to talk through the values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And we begin with the centrality of the gospel, what it means to say that we are gospel-centered. And this is a a great passage as we kind of near the end of the gospel according to the author, John. And it really points us to what happens immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the last time that Jesus Christ saw his disciples, before, Pretty much after the uh, resurrection, the, their tails were pretty much between their legs. Um, you know, they were denying him. They were deserting him. They, they were abandoning him and rejecting him. Now, what's the first thing he says to them after the resurrection? He sees Mary first. And why does he say to Mary, go, he says here, go and tell my brothers. Why does he say to them, go and tell these people who I thought were my friends, these deserters. You know, they wouldn't even stay awake with me when I asked them to pray. In my moment of greatest need, they didn't stand by me in this hour of great danger. Those miserable people who, you know, you tell them to come and and they better repent. They should be ashamed of themselves. They should offer a great explanation for this. That's not what he says. Instead, he, he says in verse 17, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. And when he appears in front of them, when he shows up, uh, before them, in, in verses 19 to 21, not a word of rebuke. It's amazing. He knew that they were beating themselves up inside. So instead, verse 22 to 23, he says, receive. Receive. In other words, I'm the conquering king. And if you were here for the call to worship, when a, whenever a king in the ancient times conquered an enemy, 
he would bring the spoils of victory with him. The spoils of war. And these spoils that he would bring, the plunder that he would bring, was always relevant to, what, uh, to the nation or to the people that he had conquered. And, and so it's always relevant to what he conquered. Jesus comes bearing the spoils of victory. And he's got much to give us. And every one of these gifts are a direct result of Jesus conquering over death, conquering over the grave. I'm going to go through this very quickly, but there are five things just in this passage alone that he gives us, the spoils of victory. He's going to give us faith, intimacy, identity, purpose, and power. Faith, intimacy with God, a new identity, a new purpose in life, and the power to be able to receive and do these things. First, Jesus gives us faith. At the end of this passage, verses 30 to 31, it's not, unfortunately not printed in your bulletins, but he says, the author says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which many, are not, many of which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, in other words, they're given to you. These are written that you may believe Jesus is Christ, is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you may believe and that you may have life in his name. He says these are written, they're given to you so that you may believe and have life in his name. This is a gift. Faith is the gift, which is really the basis of all the other gifts. Belief. Faith. I mean, how do you, you, how do you unite to the risen Christ, to this victorious king? In other words, faith in Jesus Christ is not something that you can work to on your own. You can't work up to it. It's a gift. You have to receive it. And I'm not just talking about general faith. You know, everyone's got faith generally in something. I mean, think about this. If you're a manager or a director and you have to hire people, hire workers, managers are always doing, going through a hiring process. And if you have to hire somebody for work, you've got a bunch of applicants, how do you know how are you going to decide who the right person is? Um, you're going to go through a sequence of, uh, or there's a certain order to what you do. First, you're going to ask for references. And you're going to seek out credible, authoritative sources on this person, on these candidates. You're going to seek references. You're going to look at their connections. In other words, what you're going to do is you're going to seek evidence, a credible validation that this person could be worthy, could be valuable. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to bring them in. You're going to look at their references. You're going to seek credible validation. And then you're going to bring them in and you're going to interview them. You're going to test them. You're going to give case studies. Uh, you're going to give, some people give exams. It's your way of eventually arriving at some rationally convinced conclusion about that person. So on one hand, you have credible validation. On the other hand, you are going to provide interviews and evidence to seek evidence. You're going to arrive at some sort of rationally convinced conclusion about that person. But at the end, you can't really know still. There's no guarantee. I mean, you can get to a point where you've done all the research, but there's no guarantee until what? You can study the data. You can pour through all the data. You can check all the references. You can test and test and test and interview, second interview, third interview, fourth interview. What are you going to do? At the end of the day, you have to commit to trust. At some point in time, 
You're going to have to uh, step out and make yourself vulnerable. You're going to have to expose yourself to some level of vulnerability. Expose yourself. You're going to have to absorb some level of risk. And that's the sequence. Credible validation. A rational, rationally convinced conclusion. But at the end of the day, you, it has to be a commitment to trust. Faith. And that's, that's amazing because, you know, references and, and answers to all these questions, is, questions they're going to bring you to some level of, of probability. But you can't really commit. You can't really know until you commit. You can't really be sure until you commit. And that's how it is pretty much in all important areas of life, if you think about it. You can't really know until you commit. Now, some of you are saying, well, well, I mean, first of all, some of you, the reason why you don't know, the reason why you don't have assurance, the reason why you have all these doubts and all these questions, really because you may not have really committed. And you say, but I don't want to give up control. I mean, I, how am I supposed to just give trust like that? Listen, no act of trust, no act of commitment ever comes without losing some form of control in your life, some, some level of freedom in your life. Think about marriage. You can't get married without losing some form of control. And if that's the case with the most intimate, human, finite relationship in your life, how much more, all the more the case, with an intimate, infinite God, a relationship with him. And, and this is why Jesus has to give it to us. He gives it to us, faith. Because we don't have that kind of faith to surrender. We don't have that kind of faith to just give like that. The hardest thing to give in life is in the hardest thing to give in life is up, to just give up, to give in, to surrender. Where once you are able to have faith, then you're able to receive the remaining spoils of war that the king offers. So the first thing that we get is faith. The second thing we get is intimacy. Verse 17, Jesus says an incredibly odd thing to Mary. Mary, uh, you know, grabs a hold of him, but he says, don't touch me. That's what he, you know, Mary's that wants to cling. He says, don't touch me. The actual translation, he says, Mary, don't cling to me. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, why does he say that? I, I used to think that this meant, I have a new body now, Mary. I've been risen from the dead and I'm clean. Don't touch me. Don't cling to me. Don't come near to me because I've been glorified and I'm holy. And so if you come near to me, you might get consumed. My power might just zap you. But that can't be the case. If you read further, that can't be the case because later on he comes to doubting Thomas. Mary just believes instantly once she recognizes who Jesus is, but he comes to doubting Thomas. And what does he say to Thomas? See, touch, touch me. So on one hand he says to Mary, don't cling to me. On the other hand he says to Thomas, you can touch me. Why does he say this to Mary? Why does he say this particular thing to Mary? Who's such an intimate friend, who's such a close friend of his. Mary says, Mary's saying this, I never realized you'd be back, but you're back. And I'm never going to lose you again. I'm never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you go ever again. And when Jesus says, don't cling to me, what he's really saying is this, Mary, you don't understand. You don't get it. Don't, you can't hold on to me physically until I've ascended to the Father. You know, because then... You really can hold on to me. You really can cling to me. You know, I'm not 
you know, I didn't come back from the dead and raised to life like Lazarus. Back to an old life. You don't have to worry about clinging to me physically. Because I've been raised into a new body and this body is everlasting. I've been raised to new dimensions. And you'll see, now that you see this, you're going to be able to cling to me even when I'm not physically present. You have full access to me. Now you're always going to have me. Now you can always embrace me. Now you can always cling to me. And it's going to get richer and fuller and better all the way in, until you, you yourself are birthed into eternity. Right now, you cling to me at one level. But it's going to get richer as you continue to cling. It's going to get fuller and better until you yourself become an eternal being. And when you're an eternal being, we will cling and hold and embrace even fuller than that. That's what he's really saying. And what that means, on one hand, is that the risen Christ is someone that you can hold, someone that you can embrace. Jesus is someone that you're supposed to know. You're supposed to see him. You're supposed to touch him. You're supposed to be close to him, even in the dark times, especially in the darkest times. Now, some people say, they always give me this argument, well, Mary and, his, and, and Jesus' disciples, they saw Jesus physically. They were able to touch Jesus physically physically. I mean, if I saw Jesus physically in front of me, then I believe too. What you're really saying is this. I need to see Jesus as he was. I need to see Jesus in history the way other people saw Jesus. But you're never going to be able to do that because that wasn't Jesus' mission. That wasn't his purpose. Because even, he said to Mary, I died so that you can have more. You can have me fuller. You can have me richer. I can actually be personal with you. So when you pray, you're not just saying prayers. You're not just placing an order off of some menu. You can actually be intimate with God. You can hold him. You can embrace him. Let me put it another way. When you pray, do you sense a real, the reality of the presence of God in your life helping you? When you pray, do you, do you sense the comfort of God in your life, encouraging you, strengthening you, healing you? Do you sense that? I mean, don't make Jesus abstract. Let the victory of Christ shape you. Let the victory of Christ change you. On one hand, faith is not just a personal experience. It's not just some sort of mystical personal experience. But on the other hand, it's not just a set of rational truths either, something that's just going to influence your mind. On one hand, you know, faith is a personal experience, but it's a personal experience of a rational truth. It's those two things combined. On one hand, there is a personal experience, yes, but it's an experience of a rational truth. It's real. It's truth that you hold on to. Faith is not just uh, living in line with something you don't know. We always think of faith as this leap of faith. I'm, in line, I'm living in line with something I don't know. And we say, how can you do that? But it's actually quite the opposite. Faith is living in line with something you do know. You've had a personal experience of a rational truth. You know it. And it's shaping you. It's challenging you. It's changing you. To know Christ means to grab him. To know Christ actually means he's grabbing you. You can practice his presence anywhere. Because his real presence is everywhere. Practice his presence anywhere 
because His real presence is anywhere. Study the Word. Know the Word. Get it. Plug into community. That's how you practice His presence. Practice His presence in your workplace. Know that He is present and live with you. It's going to shape the way you do your work. You can do your work with integrity. You can do your work at the same time. Your work will not control you or run you. Practice His presence when you're, with, when you're at home with your children. Then it's not you ruling over your children, you subverting your children. But your mission and your purpose, all His presence being there, it, it's a tremendous comfort. No matter what state your children are in, no matter what place you are spiritually, no matter where you are spiritually, you can practice His presence anywhere because His presence is everywhere. Now, next, what that means is that we have identity. We can have faith. We can be intimate with God, but we also have a new identity. Jesus says Mary. In other words, Mary has a name. He calls her out by, by her name. Mary has a name. Mary doesn't even recognize Jesus until Jesus calls her out. In other words, Jesus knows you before you've even ever recognized who he is. Everyone here, their view of God, their approach to God, their approach to Jesus is shifting right now. No one stays the same where they are spiritually. Everybody is shifting in their approach, in their view of God. Right now, your view and your approach to God could be one way, but it's not going to be the same. And that means that you may have a certain view of Jesus that when he actually, when you actually encounter him, you actually may not recognize who he is. And yet, he knows who you are. Think about it. How do we find identity? How do we find ourselves? How do we know who we really are? I mean, Jesus says Mary. Jesus knows Mary. But how do we know who we are? Western philosophy says you come to know who you are through individual pursuits. Individual, you know, I got to find myself. I got self-discovery. Eastern philosophy says you find out who you are through community. Your community defines who you are. Your family defines who you are. And so in the Western world, we're always living individualistically. And in the Eastern world, we're always living under shame and guilt over whether or not we've appeased or we're earned our parents' approval, our family's approval. But look, look what happens here. Verse 16, Jesus says, Mary. There's the individual. She, he's certainly calling Mary out by name. I know you. But then in verse 21, he says, go to my brothers. There's community. On one hand, gospel, the gospel is this deep, rich, personal experience. But on the other hand, you can never truly experience it personally until you're plugged into the community of Christ. There's a deep, rich, personal experience that can only be deeply experienced. The more plugged in you are to that community, the more deeply and personal your relationship with God becomes. Because Jesus is the richest embodiment of both. In Matthew chapter 5 to 7, Jesus is preaching by mountainside. It's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, do not worry. He start, he, there's a portion where he says, do not worry about, about what you're going to wear, about what you're going to eat. And mainly what he's saying is, if you're pursuing that, if that's what has you, if that's what grips you, you're going to lose yourself. If you're always worried about how, what you're going to have, all these things that you want, if you're always worried about how you're going to live and your prosperity, you're going to lose yourself. And that's what, you know, you're going to pursue achievement and love and, your, and, and a nice family, a perfect family and, and this great career and your wealth. And if that's going to be your ultimate pursuit, those things promise identity. 
They promise to define you, but ultimately he says, you're going to lose yourself if you do that. But then he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, your identity will be added to you. In other words, if you want to find yourself, you have to deny yourself. You have to lose yourself. If you try to find yourself just through individual pursuit or if you want to define yourself by what your family or your community says about you, you're going to lose yourself in the pressure. You're going to lose yourself in the expectations. And you're going to just beat yourself up if you fail. You're going to, and you're going to lose yourself. You're going to become less human, less of yourself. There's going to be less joy in your life. But if you give up these pursuits, give up your personal agenda in life. If you stop coming to Jesus with an agenda and come to Jesus for Jesus, if you stop coming to God because you have other pursuits that you want to define you, and come to God for God, for himself, for who he is, his beauty, his character, who he is, what he's done for you, then you start to find yourself. What's Mary doing here? Mary has lost Jesus. Mary has lost herself. But she's searching. She's, she's, she's come to the understanding that Jesus has returned. Jesus is indeed risen. And so what you, she's searching for Jesus. She's looking for Jesus. And she's doing everything wrong. I mean, her theology is completely off kilter. She thinks he's dead. She wants to blame the, the gardener. The, she thinks the gardener is her enemy when he, she, he's actually his, her friend, the only friend she ever needed, the one friend, the one lover, the one intimate person that, that she has needed all her life. And she's doing really only one thing right. She's looking for Jesus. And she's not satisfied until she finds Jesus. And what does that tell you? That it's not about our intelligence. It's not about how we look. It's not about how, we, hey, we need to have a cool head about these kind of things. It's not about having a great moral record. Because Mary that day was not very intelligent. Mary that day was an emotional mess. Mary was considered an outcast and a prostitute, a religious outcast. What does it take to find yourself? She's just looking for Jesus, looking to the point of tears. She's just not giving up. And what does she receive? Jesus says, Mary. Intimate. Jesus actually seeks her first, knows her first. The person that you've sought after all your life. It's an amazing thing when you realize that person has been seeking you and knows you by name. Now, what is a name? Why is it so important that she calls out Mary? Your name is your identity. In those days, your name was your validation. Even now, I mean, if you think about it, even now, everyone has a nickname. Some of us are offended by our nicknames. And the reason why is this, the simple truth that everybody needs somebody outside of themselves to validate them, who they are. Everybody needs somebody outside of themselves to validate them. And you say, no, not me. I, I've kind of trained myself to not really care about what people think. Friends, come on. In any line of business, in any line of work, you have somebody above you, outside of yourself, that is validating you right now. And you need that. You don't care about what other people think of you? Then why are you sucking up to your bosses? Everybody needs validation outside of themselves. Well, I don't really care about my boss. I'm, I'm actually independent. I, I kind of work for myself. Fine. Then why do you seek validation from your children? 
You just need the love of your children. Or another way of doing it is, you just need your children to succeed. Because if they succeed, then you've been successful. You're looking for validation. You're looking for a sense sense of worth through your children. Well, not me, I don't have any children. You know, then why are you seeking validation from your spouse? If I can just get this person to love me, then I know I have worth. That's validation. We are built, human beings are built to need validation from somebody outside of ourselves. We are not all sufficient. We are not self-contained. Every one of us in what we do, most, I bet you 90% of our behavior is in some ways determined by our desire to seek validation from somebody else. I mean, it's not statistically proven, but I bet you if you go through your day and think about all the things that you say and do and the way you say it and the way you do it, it's probably determined or defined in some way because you seek and desire validation from somebody else. Our name is our identity. And, and how do you really get it? I mean, we're trapped in all these things. How do we, re- how do we really get validation? Here's Jesus, all sufficient. The reason why you can't get validation from your boss, the reason why you can't get ultimate validation from your children, I mean, you think that's what you need, and when you get it, it's not enough. The reason why you can't get validation from your spouse is because of the very reason they need validation too. You're two insufficient people trying to serve each other with validation. It doesn't work. We're just as needy. We're broken people trying to heal somebody who's broken, and because of our brokenness, they can't be healed. But here's Jesus, who's absolutely sufficient, all-sufficient, in glory, and he says, Mary, Mary, I know you. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an all-sufficient grace, everlasting love. That is a promise. That is a part, in that portion when he's saying that, that is a part of him iterating his life-binding promise to his people. How do you get it? The only one, the only validation you need is the one person who, who can ultimate valid, ultimately validate you, who can give you worth all sufficiently is the person who knows the depths of your sin, right? Because his presence is everywhere. He knows the depths of your sin, the depths of your suffering. He understands. If anybody understands suffering, Jesus understands suffering. He suffered. The depths of your ugliness. In the word of encouragement, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Oh, he knows ugliness. Who knows the depths of your tears? All the way. He knows everything to the depths. And yet he says, I went to those depths for you. You can trust me. Can you not trust Jesus Christ? Who says, I will never forsake you. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. Look at the gentleness of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Can you trust him? Jesus says, Mary. Now, he doesn't say, Mary, you're a slave. You're worthless. You're even lucky that I remember you. You're lower than the pond scum of a person and prostitute, this needy piece of trash, you. That's not what he says. That's certainly not what he says. He says, Mary, I know you. I call you by name. Now, women in those days, they had no real name. In those ancient times, women had no social standing. A woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. And yet he says, I know you. I know you. I singled you out. 
That's individual. That's the individualistic. And then he says, I want you to go to my brothers. Now, notice he says, I want you to go to my brothers. Mary is a woman. He says, I want you to go to them. Community, embodied in one. That's Jesus. He always says, I know you. Do you get that? Now, there's faith. And we have this great intimacy with God. And we have this new identity in Christ. Fourth, there's purpose. There's mission. Verse 16, notice, as soon as Jesus meets Mary, he says, Mary, incredible comfort. But then he immediately says, I want you to go. I want you to go to my brothers and tell them this. And when, she appears to, when he appears to, their, to his disciples, they're overjoyed. But he said, and he says, peace. And then what does he say? As the Father sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Next chapter over in John chapter 21, Peter, Peter is dejected. Peter is a failure. He has, he has completely failed Jesus three times over. And Jesus each time is now in, reinstating Peter. And as he's reinstating Peter, he says, he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. He says, go feed my sheep. In other words, you can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. If you've truly come as you are and if, Christ, if the love of Christ has healed you, if the love of Christ has renewed you, if the grace of Christ has captivated you, you will not stay as you are. He says, I'm sending you. Go. And this is a pattern that exists all the way through the Bible. You think, oh, he's just taking out this portion because it fits his sermon. If you look all the way to the beginning of Genesis, starting from the beginning of Genesis, all of the Bible talks about pilgrimage. First, you have, you have uh, Abraham. Abraham, this wealth wealthy, this rich merchant, God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Now leave your country. Go. All the way from the beginning of the Bible, you see this pattern. In the New Testament, you have Acts chapter 2, the first Pentecost. We're the first uh, Pentecost in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes down. He blesses the people. And they're speaking in all these tongues. What do the tongues represent? It's all the nations. It's the commission of Christ to go. Matthew chapter 28, you have the great commission. He says, therefore, all authority and power in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's good to approach Jesus because you want healing. It's good to approach Jesus because you need help, because you want acceptance. You need forgiveness. And if that's why you're here, that's great. This is the place to be for that. Anything that you want, anything that you need can be found in Jesus. But what happens when Jesus becomes your healing? What happens when Jesus becomes your help? What happens when Jesus becomes your rescue? What happens when Jesus becomes your acceptance? What happens when Jesus becomes your forgiveness? You're going to be transformed. You're going to stop looking inwardly. You know why? Because you've been filled. Jesus has become your satisfaction. And when you've been filled, you start to look out and become more compassionate and wiser to tend to the needs of other people. If If you struggle with doing that, if you struggle with tending to the needs of other people, you say, oh, those people don't deserve it. Those people out there in East Falls, they don't deserve this. Those people out there in Philadelphia, they don't know Jesus. They don't know God. They're horrible people. A lot of times you have the religious 
who kind of abstain from the city and the life in the city because they look at those people and they judge the city. They don't deserve this. Why are we giving to them, we say. But when the grace of God has overwhelmed you, you realize we're actually just ministering and giving to our equals. We are broken just the same. Jesus never calls you in to heal you without sending you out to be a healer. Never does that. There's mission. There's purpose. This is an amazing thing. You know, everyone here has suffered. And your pain, it's going to break you. It's going to humble you, and you're going to be broken. And everyone has a different dimension of that pain and suffering. Everyone suffers. And everyone's got a certain history and, and that has in some ways influenced how they live. And, and today, they're living in brokenness. Everyone's got pain, and that pain may break you. But it's an amazing thing that the gospel does because as you start to heal in Christ, that pain that you suffered, that pain that you're suffering actually empowers you. It wisens you. It shapes you. And you know why? There's a tremendous confidence. Before, there's, a, there's this, uh, an abandonedness, you know, a, a rejection, an undercurrent of rejection that you sense when you're suffering. But when you come to Christ, and when you are intimately connected to the Father, what happens is that undercurrent of pain and suffering has been removed because Christ suffered it. So even though you suffer pain, and su- even though you have pain and trial and suffering in your life, there's an undercurrent of joy, an undercurrent of satisfaction. So you know that that pain, that suffering, wow, you can look out at other people and connect with their pain and their suffering. So people who, how many times have you seen people who suffered a pain in their lives, a tremendous suffering in their lives, all of a sudden that suffering becomes really the foundation on which they can now use to actually influence and shape and heal other people. That's what's happening. There's an undercurrent of joy that resides there. God is sending you. You can help others who are sharing with you in your pain. You don't even have to have actually escape the pain. You could be living in that same pain, and yet, you know, pain, think about people. We have people in here who are, who are uh, recovering addicts. We have people here who are struggling merrily, and yet they can become a source, a tremendous source of wisdom in that suffering and pain because we're growing in wisdom, growing in compassion, growing in love. That's purpose. So you have, as gifts of the resurrection, you have faith. You have intimacy with God. You have a new identity. You have real purpose, real mission. If you haven't experienced any of those things, then you don't know Jesus. You're not intimately connected to Jesus. But how do you get it then? And lastly, you have power. There's power. Jesus says, Receive the Holy Spirit in this text. Now, why does he say that? You know, we say, I don't want to lose myself. I don't want to give up things in my life. I'm always afraid to come to Jesus because that means I'm going to give up things in my life. But I still want to know him intimately. How do I do that? How can I have this new identity, you know, without giving up too much? Or others of us say, how can I have this new identity when I don't, I just feel worthless. I feel shameful. I'm just living in guilt. Or some of us say, wow, I'm just trapped in my self-absorbed life. How can I really be on mission in Christ? Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you power. 
My power will enable you to have faith. And it's going to rescue you out of self-pity and rescue you and free you from your self-absorption into God's service, into God's purpose, into God's mission. Now, how do you do that? Now, think about this. Why didn't he say to his disciples, you miserable offenders and deserters, I want you to come and receive my punishment. Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? And the answer is this. It's because it wasn't their abandonment that killed him. It wasn't their rejection that destroyed him. There was a much greater abandonment, a much greater desertion, a much greater rejection that Jesus suffered, one that absolutely destroyed him, one that separated him from God altogether, which means it took him to the depths of hell. It was, it was when the disciples were, aban- when they abandoned him, Jesus suffered torture physically and all this pain and, and, and all, tremendous mocking. And when he was on the cross, you never hear him say, oh, the nails. You never hear him doing that. You never read in the Bible Jesus saying, oh, the crown, it's killing me. It's, it's, I'm losing blood. You, don't, you never see him saying that. You never see him saying, oh, these people are mocking me. It's hurting me. My friends who were once my friends, they're right in front of me and they're mocking me. You don't hear him saying that. You know, in fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says, like a lamb before it cheers, it was silent. He was silent. He stayed silent. But when God turned his face away, when God rejected him, when God abandoned him, when the father disowned his son and left him for dead on the cross, then Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he's saying that, what he's saying is, I've lost intimacy. We get the intimacy because Jesus lost intimacy. You get access because Jesus lost access. He's saying, you are my identity. I am in you. You are in me. And now we've been separated. I've lost my identity. I've lost intimacy. I've lost my identity. I've lost my name. I'm in the Father and I've lost my name. The Trinity has literally been torn apart, torn apart on the cross. I have no more brothers. Mary gets to go to the brothers and become a brother. I have no brothers. They've abandoned me. Jesus lost purpose. He lost his title. He lost his place. The very nature of Jesus being born in a manger means that he has abandoned his throne. He has been dethroned. I've lost myself. I've lost my title. I've lost my place. And I've lost power. You get to receive the gifts of the gospel because Jesus lost everything. He gave it up. No more gifts. Rather, what he says is, the last thing he says is, into your hands I give my spirit. Down to the very breath, he gave it up. And yet it was this loss that became the ultimate victory. That was, it was his weakness and his death that enabled him to punch a hole through death and swallow up death in his victory forever. The cross is not just a symbol of hope. It's the reality of hope. It's real hope. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? It is real hope, lasting hope. It's, a, it's not just a symbol of power. It's real power. You don't, you don't need to rely on your own power anymore. You don't need to rely because that's going to make you weak. You're always going to be seeking validation from other people. It's going to bring you down. Surrender your loves. 
Surrender the things that make up your name. Surrender the things that make up your, you know, this is the reason why we, we seek achievement and accomplishment and on all the things that we, we pursue. Jesus surrendered intimacy with his own father, God himself, so that we can have identity, we can have meaning, purpose, we can have intimacy with him, we can have power. When he says, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit, if you know anything about the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creeds ever written, kind of a summary of the Christian faith, he says, what does it say? He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit, that power that actually brought Jesus into the world, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the power that resides in you. And when he was raised from the dead, that's the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead, raised him out of the grave. That's the power that resides in you. These are the gifts of Jesus in our lives. The victory of Christ translated directly into the gifts that we receive. And, and he says, he calls us brothers. You know what a brother is? A brother is somebody who knows your deepest fears, who knows your deepest flaws, who knows your deepest betrayals, all your weaknesses, and yet he still gives you gifts. That's what a brother is. A brother knows you to your depths, and yet he still gives you gifts. On your birthday, he gives you gifts through the year he thinks of you. In a way, you need to know that you are a betrayer, that you are weak, that you are deeply flawed and broken so that you can become a brother. Do you get that? Do you understand that? That's the prerequisite. Seek Jesus Christ. Cling to Christ, and you can receive. Let's pray.